Hi, everyone. It's April 17th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Salma Karashi. In today's show, we feature a discussion with David Linden. David is currently professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Aside from heading a thriving research program, publishing a popular book on demystifying the brain, and incidentally, a really entertaining blog, he's also chief editor of the Journal of Neurophysiology. David sat down with us to talk about his work on the cellular substrates of memory in his model system of choice, the cerebellar parallel fiber synapse. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. Around the table today, we have Gary Galfo. Hello. Michael Ferris. Hi. Rama Retnam. Hi, Salva. Pleasure to be here. Fidel Santa Maria. Hey, hey. Carlos Palladini. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. And Charles Wilson. Howdy. And me, I'm Salma Karashi. Thanks for joining us, everybody. David, you spend a lot of time thinking about consciousness in your writings, but yet you've spent most of your research career at a particular cerebellar synapse. What's up with that? <laughs> Is that as close as we can experimentally get to posing big questions that are still tractable? Uh, that's a great question. And I think I have certainly been, been one who has been... Uh, drawn in by the lure of reductionism. And I think this is something that happens to a lot of neuroscientists. I can see some looks around the table like, yeah, I know how that can happen. And we have a tendency to focus our efforts on something at a level where we can really control it. But then the question becomes, well, have we lost sight of the bigger goal? So in my laboratory, we spend a lot of time working out the gritty molecular details about plasticity of various synapses and various neurons in the cerebellum, but our goal is to apply that to an understanding of, uh, of learning, albeit a very simple form of, uh, of learning that subserves things like eyelid conditioning or adaptation of the vestibulo-ocular reflex. I think in neuroscience in general, when we pick our research topics, we we make a bargain, right? In this particular case, I've said, well, I'm willing to work on a form of memory that might be a little more boring than memory for facts and events. But by doing that, I've gained the ability to form hypotheses at the level of circuits. And the very, uh, to be able to work in a way such that you can make predictions about very specific molecular events at synapses that then propagate through your circuit model to ultimately impact behavior. And so what's been very satisfying to me is that we've spent you know, most of the last 16 years working out nitty-gritty details about the molecular events in one particular form of plasticity, long-term depression of the parallel fiber Purkinje cell synapse. But then that allows us to, together with our colleagues, make mutant mice and make very explicit and testable behavioral predictions about forms of learning. Now the question, can we apply this to things like consciousness? Well, you know, we don't have a circuit for consciousness. I, I don't think that the level of experiment that I do is quite there for consciousness. It doesn't mean that it's not experimentally tractable, but it's probably not experimentally tractable on a molecules through cells through circuits to behavior level. 
That's what I liked about your talk is that you actually do cover all these levels, whereas, like you said yourself, most people, most neuroscientists, claim to cover this whole range, but they really only concentrate on one aspect, like the, the molecular or the circuit analysis. But also, a lot of us like things like that are more complicated, like you know, hippocampus or the basal ganglia. So, what 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 do you think is needed? Um, in order for us to be able to tackle this complexity, this next level of complexity, so that we can be able to say the same thing that you're saying, that I'm studying you know, the molecules, which affects this channel, that affects this cell, that affects the circuit this way, and therefore we have this behavior. Well, I think there are several things. First of all, I don't want to give the impression that the cerebellum is the only model system where, where it's possible to go to have a circuit diagram level hypothesis for learning. I think there are a couple of other good mammalian model systems. For example, I think fear conditioning in amygdala is tractable in that way. And perhaps uh, olfactory association learning in perirhinal cortex is another place where, where it may be possible to develop real circuit level hypotheses. And I think those areas are very exciting because you can also have this promise of genuinely going from molecules to behavior. But in terms of trying to apply things to more difficult regions of the brain, you know, I think there's a set of challenges that are, that are faced. In the hippocampus, for example, one of the main challenges is basically we don't know what the inputs are physiologically and we don't know what the outputs are. If someone asks you to characterize what is the information that the perforant path conveys to the hippocampus, well, you know, that's not a straightforward answer because that information is very far removed from the sensory periphery. I mean, if we were to ask here, you know, some people, would anybody have an answer for that, for that question? A thought about that question? Okay, well, I don't study the hippocampus. Olfactory. Cortical stuff. Well, you know, there, the, the, the problem is that what's coming in on the perforant path to the hippocampus is, is polysensory integrated information. It's, for example, visual information that's been through the entire uh, what pathway, mm -hmm. as they call it. And, and, so, and so it's hard to care, and which has been blended with other senses. And so to, to characterize that is really complicated and, and difficult. I'm not saying it's an endeavor that should be abandoned, but it's hard. And so I think part of unraveling more difficult structures is going to be knowing more about that information. And I think the real breakthrough there is going to come from in vivo optical recording techniques. It's going to come from the equivalent of being able to have a recording electrode in every one of a million different neurons in an optical field in an area that you want to study. And that is going to give us the idea of what's coded in something like the perforant path in a way that we just can't know right now. So I'm not sure we, at least I don't completely understand the system that you're studying. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, I have a couple of questions about it, but one of them is at the kind of at the level that you've just been talking. The, the LTD at the Kinji cell 
can alter the response of the Purkinje cell to parallel fiber input. And that then alters the deep cerebellar nuclear input that is part of the eye blink. Uh, but how is it that LTD causes the deep cerebellar nuclear neurons to fire earlier during the condition, condition stimulus? Right. So how does, ti- how does timing emerge? And yeah. so uh, by way of background for our readers, it might be worthwhile to say that in associative eyelid conditioning where an animal learns to blink in response to a tone, and it's been trained with a tone and a periorbital shock that coterminates, one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it's not at the very moment the tone starts, the animal doesn't instantly blink. It sort of waits a beat and then gives a very carefully timed blink that is at its maximum at the point where the shock would be predicted to come. Now, there are some interesting ideas about this. To me, the most interesting and compelling model to explain this comes from the work of Mike Mock at the University of Texas at Austin. And what he says is that if you imagine a population of granule cells that code the tone in different ways, some of them firing at onset, some at offset, some through the entire duration of the tone, and if you know that LTP and LTD rules at the parallel fiber Purkinje cell synapse have a timing window associated with them such that the parallel fiber can only precede the climbing fiber by a certain number of milliseconds and and still produce LTD. And if you know that the parallel fiber activation by itself produces LTP, then the timing function emerges from the timing constraints of, of LTD induction. So if you imagine that range of signaling, and Mike has put this in a model, what you can get out is a timing function, but it depends upon having a population of granule cells that code that code the tone, code the condition stimulus in different ways. And basically that's the same uh, reason why you can explain uh, delay but not trace conditioning. Would you say something about that? Because given that you've got all of this great circuitry for conditioning, you know, why does trace conditioning require some other parts of the brain? Why not just have it all? Right. Maybe it would be worthwhile for the purposes of this podcast to explain what delay and trace conditioning are. So uh, delay conditioning is the case that I just described in which the tone and the periorbital shock coterminate. If, however, the tone ends and then there is, say, a gap of a couple of hundred milliseconds before the shock, That protocol is called delay conditioning, and that protocol uh, is not sensitive to damage to the cerebellum, but is sensitive to to damage from the hippocampus. And it's a very interesting question about why is it when you have a delay conditioning protocol that it shifts to an entirely different brain location? And the short answer is we don't know. Uh, one can speculate that it may have to do, at a biophysical level, with the notion that the signal from the tone that is being actually the 
consequences of activation of the metabotropic glutamate receptor MLUR1, which gives you this rather slowish current that peaks within about a, a within a couple of hundred milliseconds and then tails off. So one notion is that the timing of of, of the sequelae of MGLUR activation is what determines the limits of association in associative eyelid conditioning. So one interesting test of this would be to do manipulations that would change the dynamics of that current and then see if you can change the constraints on the learning. But do you think we, we like in the cerebellum, we have put uh, a lot of... Um, we have built um, most of these theories based on eyelid conditioning um, uh, paradigm, and uh, this this part, this this learning is taking place in a very specific part of the cerebellum, which I think, if I'm not evolutionarily, is the oldest part. It's one of the oldest part in the cerebellum, the floculus. But what about the? Re I mean, do you think it's valid that we extrapolate? This, uh, this learning to the rest of the, uh, of the cerebellum? I mean, I don't know, like, there, there are another nine lobules to study, right? Do you think it's, it, we will find the same rules? Well, I don't think that even for eyelid conditioning that the Mar Albus Ito LTD of the parallel fiber model will end up being the sole explanation for the engram. I think there will be other plasticity mechanisms and you will ultimately find the engram being stored at locations in the deep cerebellar nuclei as well and probably being stored in by non-synaptic means uh, including changes in the intrinsic excitability of the deep nuclei uh, as well. So I would, I would broaden this in two ways. One is that Mar Albus Ito model probably only explains a part of the engram of this one particular form of learning. Then to address your question about can we extrapolate this to other forms of learning that, the, that might require the cerebellum, I think the answer is going to be yes, but only for a delimited set of things. So I think the evidence is pretty good that a that the models that work for associative eyelid conditioning work fairly well for adaptation of the vestibulo-ocular reflex. And so, uh, for example, Steve Lisberger and Mike Mock and Jennifer Raymond have got together to sort of show how some of those models have a lot of, uh, a lot of overlap and, and share a number of formal qualities. Now, I don't think that this means that this is the only way that the cerebellum can learn, and it certainly doesn't mean it's the only way that motor learning can happen. Certainly, there is motor learning that occurs in completely non-cerebellar ways, and I think there is going to be cerebellar motor learning that occurs in completely non-Mar Albus Ito model ways. I think part of what's interesting is that if you look at mutant mice that lack cerebellar LTD and that have lacked things like gain-up training and the vestibulocular reflex and associative eyelid conditioning, it's not like those mice can't do any motor learning at all. 
They can. They can improve in, uh, in a, uh, a narrow beam traverse task with training, uh, for example. And nonetheless, that narrow beam traverse training task is a cerebellar task fundamentally. So I don't think that that model and those mechanisms are the be-all and end-all of cerebellar learning, and I think your point is very well taken. Before we, a lot of, uh, before we leave that uh, particular model, I wanted you to comment on one particular hole that I know there are different ways to fill it, but it's, whenever it's presented, this hole is usually always left in place, which is that um, when you think about what um, uh, the parallel fibers are doing when a, a conditioned stimulus is presented like a tone, you would think that a certain set of them that are sensitive to auditory stimuli will increase their firing rate and provide extra excitation to a certain set of Purkinje cells. Um, but in order for this model to work where you have an ongoing activity of Purkinje uh, cell activity and uh, LTD at some of those synapses produce, produces a drop in that firing rate, you probably have to have some sort of excitation normalization going on so that you the total amount of excitation from before you present the tone to during the tone does not change. So that when the LTD part comes in, there is actually a drop that then produces a change in firing rate. Because without that, then you'll have a situation where the Purkinje neuron will, when the tone is presented, increase its firing rate, and when the synapses that are responsible for the conditioning undergo LTD, you'll just get a less of an increase rather than a, a decrease. So, well, well, right. I mean, there's homeostatic plasticity in Purkinje cells that occurs that's just like homeostatic plasticity that you find in every other neuron that's been studied in the CNS. So I don't think we have to. I don't think we have to 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 get very exotic to imagine what that kind of normalization would require. Right. But it's not quite the same thing, right? So if you have, like, say, an auditory cortex, you know, there'll be there'll be homeostatic mechanisms that keep the overall synaptic strength in place. But like when, say, a certain tone is played, there will be temporarily an increase in excitation. Um, it, because, you know, when the, a particular, it doesn't <clears throat> require, what I think is required here is actually a network level homeostasis rather than a synaptic homeostasis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that when a new stimulus is presented, the total amount of excitation received doesn't change, which is more of a moment-to-moment. -moment right. No, I, th I, think, I think that point is, very, is, is true. I think it does require a network-level homeostasis. And I think this is a topic that has come up not just in this particular cerebellar protocol, but in considerations of neural circuits generally. Didn't you, and write a paper about, didn't you write a paper about this particular topic? The ultimate like truth of a... So I think Fidel has a, had a model that was one of the things it was designed to do was to explain the role of inhibition in exactly this kind of normalization. Isn't that right? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it was in the interpretation of the results, right? So parallel granule cells will generate actual potentials, which they will, they will travel along the parallel fibers, and then um, they excite inhibitory cells as well as Purkinje cells as they are going along their, doing their business. And um, we propose that um, inhibitory cells will have a feed-forward inhibitory effect on Purkinje cells so as to um, either shut them down uh, or to 
keep their firing rate flat. So you wouldn't, the, the, some Purkinje cells will not reflect the excitatory input coming from the parallel fires. It will just remain all in, in the large sina, in the large dendrite. So one way to think about this is that, and we know that there is some synaptic plasticity between parallel fibers and inhibitory cells. So uh, at the same time that you are delivering um, parallel fiber to Purkinje cell, um, inducing parallel fiber to Purkinje cell synaptic plasticity, you can also be delivering, inducing synaptic plasticity in the inhibitory cells. And that's how you can come up with a network level homeostatic um, uh, mechanism to keep the firing rate of Purkinje cells at 40 hertz, right? Because every time you, you insert an electrode um, uh, in, in an anesthetized rad, I mean, at least in my experience, um, the, you will get very close numbers to 40 hertz, right? No matter where you, you insert the electrode. Um, and I think that's historically true. So, yeah. I mean, I think another thing to consider is that for inhibition to work in this way, the plasticity doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be synaptic plasticity on the interneurons, right. right? It could be changes in the intrinsic properties of the interneurons as well. Although inhibition is very interesting, I mean, in the cerebellum, it's, it, the, the, the relationship between Golgi cell and granule cell inhibition, um, we know that uh, from the, if you excite Golgi cells, in, uh, granule cells, the iPSC that you see in the granule cells, about 80% of that iPSC comes from extrasynaptic uh, GABA uh, receptors. Uh, so it is called a um, tonic inhibition. So it, it feeds itself from spillover GABA. Very little, only about 20% comes from phasic inhibition. So the, the amount of GABA that there is in the cerebellar cortex, especially in the granule cell layer, will have a significant effect. So you can, on top of thinking about the feed, these stellate cells and granule cells and, and basket cells, you can think about what, what the role of the Golgi cells um, are, which, is, which are a bunch of cells that uh, have to, uh, had um, relative little attention uh, throughout cerebellar um, uh, research history. And I think what you bring up is a very interesting idea because the, the granule cells are interesting and unusual in that they have the alpha-6 subunit of the GABA-A receptor, which renders them exquisitely sensitive to very, very low concentrations of GABA, which allows them to have this, this spillover GABA inhibitory tail that you mentioned. I think what this brings up is the notion that if you can control the excitation of a network by varying the concentration, the ambient concentration of a neurotransmitter like, like glutamate or GABA, then perhaps one way of setting that is by activity-dependent modulation of the transporters that normally clear those neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. And in the, case, in the case of GABA, this hasn't been identified, but in the case of glutamate, Ying Shen in my lab actually discovered a form of LTP of the glutamate mm -hmm. transporter. And so 
it may be interesting in those cases where you have receptors that are very sensitive, like NMDA receptors for glutamate, or alpha-6-containing GABA-A receptors for GABA, the sorts of, the sorts of things that, that, that modulate sort of the ambient background tone of, of that neurotransmitter sloshing around could be, could be crucial for setting network excitation. Right. A, a unique, well, not completely unique, but a uh, slightly unusual property of synaptic plasticity in the cerebellar cortex is its heavy dependence on LTD. LTD plays a special role in the Purkinje cell, maybe at least in our thinking about it. We emphasize that, it. That's a more. historical accident. I so think. you don't think that it is related to the fact that Purkinje cells have so many inputs that they can afford to live without listening well, to, to a whole lot of them at once, and they have to trim it down. Well, you know, that's an interesting idea. Uh, you, know, you should keep in mind, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, oh yeah, well, it's mostly LTP in the hippocampus and mostly LTD mm -hmm. in the cerebellum. And, you know, if circa uh, uh, 1983, you might think that that was correct because that's what we knew about at that point. But actually, the fact that LTD was discovered first in the, you know, was discovered in the cerebellum and LTP was first discovered in the hippocampus, that's a historical accident. In other words, both LTP and LTD are operating at all glutamatergic synapses in the brain and in the spinal cord, and we have never yet found a glutamatergic synapse where if you looked at it carefully, you couldn't find both LTP and LTD, and if you looked more carefully, you couldn't find that they reversed each other. So, I, you know, I don't know that there's anything special about LTD in a Purkinje cell. There's LTP also, and there's both presynaptic and postsynaptic forms of it. So, how many synapses do you think are really effectively working on a Purkinje cell? Do you think the Purkinje cell is constantly producing an output based on some? computation being performed on 100,000 synaptic inputs, or do you think that it is a smaller number that, uh, that are really being used? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, one interesting thing is, can you have synapses that are not used over a long period of time that remain functional at all, that do not degenerate, is, is sort of where you, where you go to with that. I mean, Certainly, when you look at people uh, like Boris Barbour, who have recorded granule cell Purkinje cell pairs and slices, you find a rather high fraction of silent synapses uh, at the parallel fiber Purkinje cell connection. You might say, well, you know, if that's the case, then really it's only a subset of the anatomical number that are, are really physiologically relevant. Uh, my own suspicion is that that's going to be dynamic. In other words, you can't maintain over the lifetime of an animal a significant fraction of synapses that are silent for life uh, because I think they will not be trophically supported and they will wither away. Well, most neural network models of this kind of plasticity require that neurons really, a whole lot of neurons that receive basically the same inputs distinguish themselves and come to represent different patterns by 
basically not paying attention to the same input. So two neurons mm-hmm. become different because, not because they receive different inputs, but because one of them emphasizes one set and another starts responding to the other. So you could mm-hmm. imagine it being dynamic and they could change places. Yes. Uh, and that would satisfy your requirement that synapses don't go completely away without going completely away. Uh, absolutely. But, uh, but then in those kinds of models, you end up having to have more synapses on each neuron than the neuron is actually using for its computation at any one moment. And if we look across the spectrum of neurons and see how many synapses do neurons have, they vary enormously, with the Purkinje cell being kind of at one end of the spectrum. So I was just wondering if that has some kind of meaning. You know, Purkinje cell really needs a lot of excitation to fire, or maybe that just gives it the privilege of not listening to a large proportion of its inputs at any one moment. I, I think what it is is that the Purkinje cell, in order to function in motor control, has to integrate an unusually large amount of disparate information. It has to be able to associate many, many different sensory events with each other, even in an individual Purkinje cell. And that's my own personal feeling about what has driven the tremendous, unprecedented expansion of the Purkinje cell dendrite and its incredibly odd planar architecture, which you don't tend to find, uh, you know, which is a, uh, I think uh, Chuck Stevens once said the dendrite of the Purkinje cell is built like a postage stamp, meaning that it's kind of squarish and very, very, very two-dimensional. I was thought that it was like a matrix. Yeah. As a matter of fact, and that's the idea I got when I was reading Mars. Uh, papers, right? It's just like if you had a matrix and you use this binary matrix to do um, um, like a, a signal processing, right? Or like identifying shapes, right? It's like you take the dendrite of the Purkinje cell, which is planar, and you can like draw a happy face and that's going to generate as uh, um, a certain uh, spike train and then you can draw with just with the synapses, right? You activate them in a different shape and you will generate a different uh, spike train. And that was kind of the uh, idea, I guess, at that time, um, just to looking at the combinatorial um, uh, potential between granule cell and, and uh, Purkinje cells. But th- there could be, I mean, if you just do the numbers, right? I mean, Purkinje cells in, in rats, they receive input from, a sm- from five millimeters uh, right, and like 2.5 millimeters from one side and 2.5 millimeters from the other side. I mean, parallel fibers are five millimeters in length in the rat. Um, in, in the turtle, I think the parallel fibers go around the cerebellum. They, they, they actually could potentially contact all the Purkinje cells along uh, the tangential a- uh, axis of the, um, uh, 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 the coronal axis of the... Um, uh, of the cerebellum. So if only you have a fraction of the granule cells active at any given millisecond or second, uh, these Purkinje cells could be receiving a lot of information. I mean, if you just assume that they have 200,000 synapses, 10% or 5%, and even if you, if you take uh, like uh, Hoyser's data uh, that they say that uh, very few, the granule cells are mostly quiescent, right, when they were recording them in vivo, intracellularly in vivo, uh, 
you could you could just multiply these probabilities and see that the potential will achieve five thousand or but potentially. I mean, that's how many uh, yeah, synapses presynaptically are active. And then the question is, what? Uh, on I mean, top I, I of mean, that, we, we act as though it's a good thing. Uh, if I uh, ten thousand inputs is better than five thousand inputs, right? It doesn't seem like it to me. If I, there were ten thousand people giving me advice versus five thousand people giving me advice, mm -hmm. that would be too many in both cases. And I couldn't make sense. You're definitely not a Purkinje cell. So I'm definitely not a Purkinje cell. So, and what you said about the sort of pixel map way of thinking about mm -hmm. it is that somehow the, the Purkinje cell could tell the difference between the same number of synapses, one making a frowning face, one making a happy face. And I don't see the mechanism that this cell has for telling the difference. The inputs are all approximately the same depending on their location. So there's been careful experiments showing that a synapse over here in this dendritic tree causes about the same effect as one there. Distance from the sum isn't all that important. So what that means is, if you take it at face value, and maybe I shouldn't, but if you do, you think that, well, then, if the same number of synapses is going to be the same thing, whether it's making a, drawing a frowning face on right. the dendritic tree or a smiling is this, is this, Although, uh, what has this been, uh, particular to Purkinje cells, what you're saying? I think it's a problem for thinking about all kinds of things. Well, you think about an integrated fire neuron, well, right? I a, mean, uh, like there was a um, integrated fire neuron. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, they have more problems. <laughs> um, but uh, didn't um, McGee's group uh, show have a paper recently, uh, I'm going to forget now, where, he, where they showed that... Um, um, some dendrites um, can be activated. Or, or, or They're really fast strongly. on caging, right? They're really fast. Yeah, they did really fast on caging on one dendrite, and, and then they did on the same cell on another dendrite, mm -hmm. and they showed that on the one dendrite they can induce an action potential, whereas the exact same thing on the other dendrite does not induce an action potential. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I should have read the paper better, but um, they they were able to induce to switch which which um, dendrite would actually induce an action potential. So perhaps there is there is something to the frowning so versus both, smiling. In both cases, thing. no. In both cases, you you either make the cell <laughs> responsive or not responsive to it. So you could imagine a Purkinje cell that wouldn't fire in response to a smiling face drawn on its dendritic tree and would fire for a frowning face. But then basically, what you're saying is the pixels that are responsible for the smiling face are turned off. And so the cell doesn't respond. Well, no, they're, they're not all turned off, but, but some of them are going to be turned on preferentially versus others, and you yeah. may get a different combination of dendrites being activated. You do, but the thing is, I mean, what, what Fidel said, and what would be great, it seems to me, is if the cell had, you know, 100,000 different responses, and so 100,000 different combinations, and the cell could have a combinatorial code, and it right. could tell you what combinations of inputs it had gotten, by some by giving an action potential of a different color or something like mm -hmm. that, but action potentials aren't like that. They are, they don't come in different colors, and so if there are ten different ways of making an action potential, they all look exactly the same as they're going down the axon. And so the question is, if a neuron has two hundred thousand inputs, how can it make good use of those? How can it do something interesting with two hundred thousand inputs? And well, one, the, the way it, the way it does it is is this. In other words, if there's two hundred thousand inputs code different things, and if their weights can be altered in a use-dependent fashion, then you don't need to 
have the SOMA be able to distinguish this combinatorial code, the problem that you're bringing up. In other words, if this is, if this, if you want to associate a touch in all the different places on your body that can be conveyed by all these different 200,000 parallel fibers to your Purkinje cell, and if by doing that and, and uh, associating that with a US, you can drive the synaptic weight for the place that you happen to be touching, and you can also do it for another completely different place on your body that you happen to be touching that time, well, then you don't need to decode that. In other words, all you need is to say, all right, I have changed the weight in this, in this synapse here, and when that CS comes in, well, then the probability of, of my reaction to it can be altered. It doesn't require that the soma know the address of all the different synapses that are coming in to be able to tell, well, oh, okay, well, this particular depolarization is special because it came from the 14th synapse on the third dendritic branch, right? Which is, you know, that's the problem you're alluding to, that, that it, the soma can't know that. Although there has to be some kind of mapping because the parallel fibers, because of the, they spank so, so much, we know that different sensory parts uh, uh, will, will excite the same parallel fibers. Like, for example, you can get an arm and a hand and the elbow and the shoulder, uh, potentially, sending information to the same Purkinje cell, right? So that, that Purkinje cell has to know which synapses, I mean, theoretically, right, that Purkinje cell is not that it's receiving some excitatory input, and um, it, it has to know from where, from which patch, which sensory uh, receptive field it is receiving it from uh, in, the, in the granule cell layer, right? But it's not exclusive. It's not that there's only a Purkinje cell receives a tone and uh, the shock, but it receives also multiple other sensory input, and that is that is. I mean, that, I think that's a a problem, right? That, that that is a problem that we don't know the answer completely. I mean, they, if you look also back to the anatomy, granule cells send axons in bundles, and then they bifurcate. Um, uh, they don't bifurcate all together. Right, that same boulder starts bifurcating little by little as, as the axons ascend in the ascending in the ascending segment. And there's some order, like the deep granule cells bifurcate first, and the superficial ones. Yeah, bifurcate and, and, and they're a little bit fast. I mean, there's some. In, uh, I mean, it's it, it seems that the power the power of fire in at least in some um, preparations, the power of fibers at the bottom are faster than the power of fibers at the top. But anyway, what you will have is. Instead of a bundle of information that uh, activates an, a hot zone in the dendritic tree, like all correlated, you will have like this kind of uh, vertical beam that traverses the um, the the, granule, the the molecular layer, right? And will be touching the protein cell in multiple parts. So it's not that the, you can say, oh, there's a hot spot, and you can approximate this with a sigma pi neuron, something that. Uh, has been proposed in the past uh, that the sub branches will acti activate like all our non compartments, right? They all, the, the, the big branches of so the by sigma pi. Huh? Each uh, sigma pi neuron means that each little piece has its own threshold. Right. So sigma means you 
uh, you're adding them all up, and then pi means that you're thresholding them. That's what right, right, exactly, exactly. But uh, that that wouldn't work even in, in Purkinje cells, I think, based on just looking at the uh, the anatomy. David, I have a, a question that's uh, more in comparative in nature, right? So we're talking about uh, the system you've dissected out, and and we want to march forward to to relate it to consciousness, so some higher order circuit. Now, rather than going there, let's let's step back, and I think. To me, a lot of hypotheses are stronger if they're if you see them throughout nature. So the question is, you've, you've manipulated many uh, uh, molecules and genes within this particular circuit. How well conserved is this in C. elegans, Aplesia, uh, Drosophila, and can we study this particular or the principles of this circuitry in the cerebellum in lower organisms? Yeah, that's a great question. I thought you were going to ask a, a, a simpler question, which is, are these mechanisms in cerebellum either found in other places of the mammalian brain? No. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> and the answer is, is sort of yes and no. Uh, there are molecular cascades that are shared, but oftentimes the details are very different. So, for example, protein kinase C activation produces LTD in a cerebellar Purkinje cell that will drive mini amplitude low. That doesn't occur in a hippocampal pyramidal neuron or a neocortical pyramidal neuron. Um, my understanding is that uh, while some of the molecular players that we are unearthing are going to be conserved in, for example, Plesia and, uh, and C. elegans. Some are not. I mean, my understanding, for example, I don't think the complement of metabotropic glutamate receptors that you find in mammals is present in C. elegans, for example. So, and I don't think we should necessarily expect these things to all be entirely present as we go uh, as we go sort of in, in, in evolutionarily simpler organisms. Well, I think, I think some of... They arise from something, right? They, it's not just a, all of a sudden it evolved in, in mammals. There's, there's a stepwise gradation. You know, that you may not have a cast of uh, mm -hmm. six or seven glutamate receptors. You may have one or two. Well, exactly, right. And as you know, there are whole families of seven transmembrane protein G-coupled receptors. And so, for example, there are, uh, you know, odorant receptors that fall into this class are kind of rudimental, in a rudimentary way, similar to metabotropic glutamate receptors. And so it's not that hard to imagine how diversion of that class of receptors could give rise to a lot of different receptors that are present in mammals that, where there may be fewer examples or, or, or uh, in, for example, C. elegans or, or Drosophila. What's interesting to me is that when you look at some of the classic learning model systems, it's kind of interesting to look back historically, right? So in Aplysia in the 1970s, we had this notion that we were going to get the cell biological alphabet of learning, right? That was the the Kandel phrase. We were going to learn the basic ideas about use-dependent modulation of, uh, of synapses in the aplysia, and then that we would take that and then apply it to the mammal. 
Well, it actually didn't work out too well, right? In other words, there was a story developed that's very interesting about uh, serotonin modulation of, of, of neurotransmitter uh, release in the aplysia, and that has not been a fundamental mammalian mode of uh, information storage. And in fact, the flow of information has been the other way. It's actually been from mammal to the aplysia in some of the most fundamental ways. So for example, um, it turns out that aplysia long-term facilitation is dependent upon an NMDA-type glutamate receptor and is triggered postsynaptically in a way that is highly reminiscent of conventional hippocampal LTP. David Glanzman was really the one who, who took the lead in, in discovering this. And so in this particular case, actually, developments in the mammal set the record straight in the aplysia. It wasn't that the fundamental, the cell biological alphabet of learning from aplysia actually got applied to the mammal in a way that was generally informative. I mean, there were some themes that were applied having to do with cyclic AMP and, and, and gene expression that did carry forward, but a lot of the fundamental aspects of the way synapses changed that were revealed in the aplysia didn't turn out to be that useful. So it seems to me that if you're looking for cerebellar-like function in places other than the cerebellum, you also probably need the circuitry, not just the, uh, the molecules. And there are cerebellar-like structures in um, a lot of animals that are mainly associated with the lateral line. And you know, the electric fish is a famous example. I was mm -hmm. wondering if you have an opinion about how how cerebellar-like they are, especially because I believe, at least in some cases, they lack a climbing fiber input. So do you think that is a uh, an overstretch to call um, you know, the, some, of, some of these electrosensory-associated structures cerebellar-like just because they have a parallel fiber system uh, and cells that look in some ways like the Kenji cell? Well, so that's a great question. I don't actually work on either... Uh, electrosensory lobe or on the dorsal cochlear nucleus, which is another structure that people have called cerebellar-like. I think that there, in terms of synaptic transmission and uh, synaptic plasticity in these structures, there is going to be some degree of overlap, but I would say it's also very clear that it's not, it's not a carbon copy of the cerebellum. There, there are some things that are fundamentally different. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of a wishy-washy answer. I, I, guess, I guess I would give a yes and no answer. I think there are some things that are going to be similar computationally. There are going to be some themes that are carried through. There's going to be some molecular mechanisms that are be, going to be carried through. But there are some things that are, are, are clearly not the same. I don't think you should expect that the plasticity molecules and the plasticity rules in the cerebellum-like structures are, are, are going to follow precisely what we know from the cerebellum. So we talk about various types of physiological plasticity. You just spoke about a few, intrinsic, um, mnemonic, homeostatic metaplasticity. Um, and as you've also said, we talk about plasticity occurring at every functional level of the neural circuit from, you know, down to receptors and molecules, transporters, et cetera. So if neural circuits are infinitely labile, um, 
how do we balance the need for plasticity and stability? And right, right. Well, you know, it's. Uh, I wrote a review article with Sun Jung Kim, and and we we quoted uh, Mae West, and she said sometimes. Uh, what did she say? She said, too much of a good thing can be wonderful. <laughs> and uh, I think that applies to plasticity, right? I mean, obviously, to store memories, we need the plasticity to store them, and then we need them to be retained in the nervous system in a way that we can access some of them throughout our entire life. And so how do you balance plasticity and stability? And, and when you look around... When you look at the theme of plasticity research, the way I see it is like this. In the beginning, we thought that there was hippocampal LTP. And we thought, well, the hippocampus we know has a special role in memory. And so at that time, back in those days, everyone was saying, well, this is a special thing in the hippocampus, and it's not going to be found in other places of the brain because the hippocampus has a special role in memory, and these other parts of the brain don't. Well, that turned out to be utterly wrong. I mean, LTP is everywhere. It's in the spinal cord. It's in the neocortex. It's everywhere. Every glutamatergic synapse where you look at it carefully enough has it. And of course, there's LTD. And it turns out that there's not just LTP and LTD, a fast glutamatergic neurotransmission. There's slow metabotropic transmission undergoes LTP and LTD. Gap junctions undergo use-dependent plasticity. Glutamate transporters, GABA synapses, uh, voltage-gated ion channels, et cetera, et cetera. The theme is that if you look at an electrophysiological function long enough, you'll find it to be plastic. And so is that too much of a good thing? How do you then, if, if every electrophysiological function of neurons is plastic, how do you ever keep a memory? How, how do you just keep from overwriting things constantly? And I think the, the answer to some degree, I mean, the short answer is we don't know. But I think the speculative answer is that if you look at these different forms of plasticity, you find that some of them are well-suited to storing the stuff of information, what, what I call mnemonic plasticity. In other words, those phenomena that change synaptic throughput in a synapse-by-synapse fine-grained way, they're very good for storing the stuff of information. Now, I'm saying synaptic throughput as opposed to synaptic strength because what I mean to convey here is the probability of spike firing in the soma or the axon hillock as a function of synaptic drive. So that involves both the synaptic strength, the propagation of that electrical signal to the soma and the integration with the voltage-gated channels that ultimately gives rise to spiking. All those different things then comprise synaptic throughput. So obviously things like LTP and LTD of fast neurotransmission, they're potentially mnemonic, right? They can store the fine-grained stuff of memory in individual synapses. If you have a modulation that changes the spike threshold by acting on, say, some K channels that are present on the axon hillock, well, that is not precisely mnemonic. That is 
going to be something that will change the throughput function for every synapse that might impinge upon the dendrite and soma. And so it has an important function, perhaps, in homeostasis, in setting the average, uh, uh, the average activity level, and uh, sort of turning the whole uh, gain or contrast of the dendrite up and down. But it's a fundamentally different mechanism. And so if you look at all these different things, the ion channels, the transporters, the slow synapses, the fast synapses, what you find is that there are a lot of forms of plasticity, but you can subdivide them. Some of them are mnemonic and synapse-specific. Some of them are homeostatic. They tend to be to integrate over a longer time period and change the average firing rate for whole cells and perhaps, as we spoke earlier, of whole circuits. And then we have the metaplastic phenomena. So for example, cerebellar uh, LTD of the parallel fiber is crucially dependent upon activation of MGLUR1, uh, the metabotropic receptor. It turns out that MGLUR1 itself can undergo LTP and LTD. So if you turn, if you reduce the uh, uh, number of uh, amount of MGLUR1 in the synapse, you're not changing the response of that synapse to fast activation, but you are changing the probability that that synapse will subsequently undergo LTD. And as a consequence, that's a metaplastic phenomenon. So my hand-waving explanation to this very good general question is that, yes, there are a lot of different forms of plasticity, but when you go to sort of make a taxonomy of them and divide them up, maybe it's not so overwhelming. And maybe the ones that affect the stuff of memory, mnemonic plasticity, are sufficiently constrained so as to not overwrite what we need and give us the stability to function. So I also just wanted to bring up quickly, um, this past year your group has published some studies on axon motility. I was hoping maybe you could say a bit about that. Right. Well, so I'll tell you, this work was done by a very talented uh, postdoctoral fellow named Hiroshi Nishiyama, and uh, this involves imaging of axons in the intact anesthetized mouse brain. And this builds on previous work uh, that uh, uh, came out of a number of laboratories, including Carl Svoboda's lab, where they've shown that in the adult neocortex that axons uh, are not merely static, that there are axons that, that, that can move and grow and morph and extend near, and retract uh, terminal boutons. Uh, it was also shown that different axons with different cell bodies of origin could, on the average, have different motilities. So, for example, the axons uh, in the superficial layers of the neocortex that came from the thalamus had different average activity than those axons that came from other pyramidal cells. The question we really wanted to answer was, if you have an axon that branches. It comes from the same cell body, but it branches. And those branches innervate two different kinds of targets. Can those axons in vivo have different motility? 
We use the cerebellar climbing fiber as an example because the main ascending branch of the climbing fiber makes many synapses on, on Purkinje cells. And there's a transverse branch of the climbing fiber which basically makes no conventional synapses at all. It runs for hundreds of microns and doesn't form conventional synapses. Together with, with Watanabe's group in Japan, we did serial EM reconstructions, and they're just those synapses aren't are just aren't there. It turns out that that transverse branch is highly motile in the adult. It extends, it retracts, it forms new varicosities. The varicosities slide like back and forth like beads on a string. Whereas the ascending branch is nearly locked in. It is very minimally plastic. It doesn't wiggle. The varicosities don't change shape, and they don't uh, appear and disappear very much. Uh, so we were very excited to, to see that different axonal branches could, dis could display very different degrees of motility. Now, to us, there are many, many different ways to sort of follow up on this observation. One of the things that interests us the most is something that's very clinically exciting. And as I think everyone is aware, there's a tremendous interest in promoting axonal growth following injury in the CNS, both in the brain and the spinal cord, to promote functional recovery. And there's a lot of effort with people doing things like uh, cell grafts and antibodies and drugs to try to promote this. But the way people have of measuring this is very crude. Because generally what they do is they'll make a lesion, they'll give a manipulation, their drug, their mutation, their antibody, etc. They'll wait for a while, then they'll fix the animal, slice up the tissue, and look to see what happened to the recovering the axons they want to recover. And all you get then is a snapshot at the end, what happened at the end. A lot of times you see a glial scar, and you see some axons that have stalled right before the scar. But what was the story that led up to that? Did a bunch of those axons get past the scar, but then they could survive and they died back? Did the axons come and put out philopodia and feel around the scar and get repulsed? If some axons got past the scar, were they the ones that had greater fall, uh, fast motility getting there? So we're very interested in applying this time-lapse axonal imaging in vivo to the problem of axonal regeneration. And we think it's going to be very, very exciting, first, just at a basal level, to describe how axonal sprouting and regeneration following injury in the brain occur. There's a lot of just very basic descriptive science to be done. And then once we have that foundation, we are partnering with a number of people with potential therapies, with sugar-modifying uh, enzymes and, and drugs and mutations and antibodies, to try to assess this with time-lapse movies, which I think will be the ideal way of doing it. We're all fired up. All, now all we need is funding. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Well, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a lot of fun. And we, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.